This is The Rounds Table. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Rounds Table. I'm one of the new rotating hosts. My name is Christopher Giuliano, and I am an internal medicine clinical pharmacist. And we have a guest host today, Amber Lene Martirosoff, and she is a clinical pharmacist that practices in the ambulatory care setting with a focus in pulmonology. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for not butchering my last name too bad. Today, our episode is going to be called Bleeding Heart. The first article we're going to talk about is going to look at some of the DOACs in patients with AFib that also are on dialysis. And then our second article is going to look at the cardiovascular safety of medications used in smoking cessation. The first article that we're going to talk about today is outcomes associated with apixaban and ESRD patients with atrial fibrillation in the U.S. This was first published by Ciantis and colleagues online in June in circulation. Hi, Chris. Can you tell me the main message of this article? Sure. So this was a large cohort study in about 2,350 AFib dialysis patients receiving apixaban, and they compared those patients receiving apixaban to Coumadin, and they found no difference in stroke, worse systemic embolism, and less major bleeding. There were no differences in GI bleeding or intracranial bleeding overall. Sounds like a fascinating article. So can you tell me a little bit more about why this article is important in the broader context of what's going on right now with DOACs and bleeding risk? So for a while at our institution, we have been using apixaban in dialysis patients, even though there's not a lot of data to support its use. The FDA labeling was approved based off a study in eight patients, and it was actually only done with a single dose of apixaban. And some other studies have recently come out looking at dabigatran and rivaroxaban, and they showed in patients with end-stage renal disease that these actually increased bleeding risk compared to warfarin. So theoretically, you would be concerned that apixaban would also have some of the same risks. So what was the study design? And I know you mentioned it was in the U.S., but where exactly did it take place? They actually pulled data from across the U.S. from all the different Medicare databases and combined them together. This was an observational cohort. And who were the patients in the study? So they only included patients that were on hemodialysis, and the AFib prescription for the anticoagulant had to be new. So they used specific rules in the database to only grab new anticoagulant prescriptions for AFib. They did exclude patients with mitral stenosis or heart valve replacement, including bioprosthetic valves. So the patients in this study had an average age around 68. They were slightly more males than females. They were mostly on hemodialysis. There was some other forms like peritoneal dialysis. And they had been on hemodialysis for a long time, more than three years. These patients had extensive past medical history, not surprising with the patient population. Almost all of these patients had hypertension, anemia, and more than 75% of the patients had diabetes and heart failure. 
the average CHADS VAS score was around 5. And these patients were matched to each other based on a prognostic score. This is actually similar to a propensity score, but instead of looking at their likelihood to be prescribed these agents, they are matched based on their baseline risk for the outcome that they're looking at. And can you tell me more about that primary question of this study? What, what were they really looking at? What was the exposure? So the exposure in this study was the apixaban, and they did end up evaluating apixaban as a whole, and then they also looked at the 2.5 and 5 milligram doses separately. And with the comparison versus Coumadin, these patients were followed from whenever they had started the agent until December of 2015. Now, a lot of these patients ended up dropping out pretty early. The average length of follow-up was about three months in the apixaban group and four months in the Coumadin group. Now, the primary outcome was ischemic stroke or systemic embolism. And they didn't specifically define the systemic embolism component. Usually, this is seen in about 10% of atrial fibrillation patients. Instead of having a stroke, they have embolisms in other areas, typically the extremities. They also had other outcomes. They actually didn't specify which one was their primary outcome. They also looked at major bleeding. Major bleeding was defined as critical site bleeding requiring blood transfusion or death. They also looked at GI bleeding and intracranial bleeding separately from major bleeding. So they looked at three different bleeding definitions. That's major bleeding, GI bleeding, and intracranial bleeding. And then lastly, they looked at death. So that is five separate outcomes that they looked at. And they didn't specify which one of those was their primary. Okay. And based on those five outcomes, what did the study find? What were the results? So overall, this study found no difference in the risk of stroke or systemic embolism with a hazard ratio of 0.85. That confidence interval crossed one. They found no difference with GI bleed, intracranial bleed, or death. However, they did see a difference in major bleeding with a hazard ratio of 0.72. Now, this was when both apixaban doses were combined together. When they looked at the different doses, both the 5 milligrams or the 2.5 milligrams twice a day, they actually saw better outcomes with the 5 milligrams twice a day. And with the 5 milligrams twice a day, they actually showed decreased rates of stroke decreased major bleeding, and less death. No differences were seen with GI or intracranial bleeding. The 2.5 only showed an improvement in major bleeding. Now, in addition to doing their prognostic score matching, to make sure that their results held up based off looking at the data in a different way, they also did a survival analysis using a Cox proportional hazard ratio model, which is a fancy way of doing a regression over time, and the results were the same. So no matter how they analyzed it, the results were pretty consistent. 
if we extrapolate the results, looking at the baseline major bleeding that was seen in this study of about 10%, which is pretty high over that short period of time when patients were enrolled, but these are dialysis patients and they tend to bleed a little bit more, we would expect to see about a 3% absolute decrease in bleeding rates over the course of a year using apixaban, and that number needed to treat comes out to be about 33 So it sounds like some very interesting results here. Is there any interesting points or observations that you want to make about this study and and discuss? So this is the first major clinical evaluation of apixaban in this patient population. And we were really concerned about bleeding risk, and it looks like overall major bleeding was actually less. So this should make us feel more comfortable about using apixaban in this patient population. Now, there are some potential limitations to the study. This was done from a Medicare insurance database, so there are some potential biases that could be present. The first one could just be information bias due to the information that was put into the analysis. There may be some information in there that was incorrect from different ICD coding. There can also be unmeasured confounders, so confounders that weren't included. One that comes to mind is both aspirin and NSAID use. Aspirin and NSAID are available over-the-counter in the U.S., so it won't be collected in the Medicare database, so you can't control for those. Another big limitation was that 60.9% of patients in the apixaban group and 72% of patients in the Coumadin group were censored because they didn't get their prescriptions refilled within the first year. So that's why the average length of time they were on therapy was so short. Now this isn't particularly surprising because dialysis patients don't tolerate these medications well. And even though they may not have like a major bleed, they may have minor bleeding that these medications could be stopped for that purpose. And how do you feel about the strengths and weaknesses? What's your take on the quality of this research article? I think the major strength is that this confirms the FDA's current dosing recommendations for apixaban in dialysis patients. As I said, the biggest weaknesses are just some of the inherent limitations that come along with observational research. However, this really does ease my concerns over the safety of apixaban in this population. I don't think randomized studies will be done in the future, so this may be the best data that we have for a long time. So lastly, Chris, can you tell me some of the take-home points of this study and what all of us should use to kind of drive some of our clinical practice? So I think the big take-home point with this study is that using apixaban in hemodialysis patients seems reasonable and it doesn't look like there's an increased risk of bleeding and there may actually be a decreased risk. All right. Great. Thank you, Amber. Let's move on to your article. So the next article we're going to talk about is the cardiovascular safety of varenicline, bupropion, and nicotine patch in smokers. This was a trial that was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, and it was published in May 2018. Great, Amber. So what was the main message for this article? 
I think it's important for us to understand that this article was actually an extension of the EAGLES trial. And the EAGLES trial was the Evaluating Adverse Events in Global Smoking Cessation Study. And the EAGLES study originally evaluated the neuropsychiatric effects of these three agents in smoking cessation. And halfway through the study, the FDA, as well as the European Medicines Agency, asked for a change in protocol and asked the researchers to create a protocol that would then also evaluate the cardiovascular safety of these drugs. And so the study really evaluates the safety risk of renicline, bupropion, and nicotine patches. It's really interesting. They studied over 8,000 patients over 24 weeks and then continued that for another 28 weeks. All right. Interesting. So this is an extension of the Eagle study. So how is this going to improve our existing knowledge? Well, you know, it's really fascinating because there were concerns that were raised at national meetings, including CHEST and ACC, about the cardiovascular safety of smoking cessation therapies. And I think that these groups then kind of led the charge, which got the FDA interested in investigating the safety of these drugs. If you think about smoking itself, it's a huge modifiable cardiovascular risk factor. But if we're targeting smoking cessation, And using agents that increase cardiovascular risk, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the face, essentially. So what we really want to make sure is that the agents that we are using uh, for smoking cessation don't have an impact on cardiovascular risk, or if they have an impact on cardiovascular risk, it's less than smoking itself. Wow. Okay. So what was the design of this study? So this, again, was a continuation of the EAGLE study. So the EAGLE study was a 24-week, double-blind, randomized, triple-dummy, placebo, and active-controlled trial that was conducted at over 140 multinational centers. The extension included patients who completed the full 24 weeks, and then these patients then received an additional 28 weeks of observation for cardiovascular safety data. And so what kind of patients, you mentioned they were from the EAGLES study, so who were these patients? So the EAGLES study included patients that were between the ages of 18 and 75 who had smoked 10 or more cigarettes per day, who were also actively interested in quitting. Exclusion criteria was any unstable psychiatric illness, active substance abuse, clinically significant cardiovascular disease in the two months prior to study entry, or inadequate control of a patient's hypertension. When we look at the patient population, average age was between 46 and 48, with slightly more females than males, and predominantly a Caucasian group. So what was the main intervention in this randomized control trial? So in the EAGLE study, they looked at the efficacy of uh, varenicline 1 milligram BID, or twice daily dosing, bupropion 150 milligrams twice daily, or a tapering regimen of nicotine replacement therapy with the nicotine patch, 21 milligrams down to 14, down to seven, as appropriate per tapering policies. And then they also compared that to a placebo. Okay, wow. It sounds like they had a lot of different groups. That's really interesting. Definitely. And so with all of these different smoking cessation strategies, what was the main outcome that they looked for? So the primary outcome definition was to characterize the cardiovascular safety profiles of specifically the varenicline and bupropion first compared to placebo, and then also to compare nicotine replacement therapy. And their primary endpoint was time to major adverse cardiovascular event, which they defined using MACE. So the major adverse cardiovascular event, which would include cardiovascular death, 
non-fatal myocardial infarction or a non-fatal stroke. They also included secondary outcomes, which they clarified as MACE+. plus. So MACE plus peripheral vascular disease or some type of worsening of peripheral vascular disease that would require some type of intervention, a need for coronary revascularization or hospitalization for unstable angina. So Amber, you mentioned how it was measured, but when did the measurement occur? Yeah, so I think this is a very important part of the study design because they actually measured the primary and secondary endpoints up until the last dose of the study drug plus 30 days post-dosing, and for a subset of the population, they continued it up until the end of the study, which could be out to 52 weeks. So giving us a lot of different data points at important times when you think about smoking cessation across the board. Okay, and it sounds like following for a longer period of time would also help looking at cardiovascular safety. Absolutely. And so overall, did they find any differences in cardiovascular safety? So they actually did not find any significant differences in time to MACE or MACE plus comparing all active treatment with placebo across all observation periods. They actually did a log rank analysis and the p-value was less than 0.05, demonstrating that there was no statistically significant difference in time to these events. Okay, so overall it was a wash between all these different therapies. Was there anything else interesting that caught your eye? So there's actually a couple of different things. So the cardiovascular safety endpoints were low across all treatment groups, which I think is really important for us to understand that not only was there no difference compared to placebo, but the event rates themselves were low. The number of events was actually greatest in the participants who had the highest Framingham risk category, which we would anticipate anyways, because they're already high cardiovascular risk. Mm -hmm. And so they're higher risk, but it wasn't really equated to the drugs themselves, but more so the risk that the patients already had. I think it's also important to note that there were 13 patients who did die during the 52-week period, but only five of those deaths were judged to be due to cardiovascular reasons. And of those, only one was in the varenicline group, two were in the bupropion group, and then two were in the placebo group. So no statistically significant differences between the treatment groups and the placebo group in terms of death throughout the study. I think it's also important to note that because this was a continuation of the EAGLE study, they were also looking at neuropsychiatric effects. And across the board in both studies, there were no additional safety concerns that were noted, neuropsychiatric, cardiovascular, or otherwise related. Right. So the other analysis with the EAGLE study didn't find a difference in neuropsychiatric adverse effects. Correct. Okay. So it sounds like this was a pretty well done randomized control trial. Was there any limitations that you saw? Yeah. So, you know, the study, when you look at the way the study was designed, I think that it's important for us to recognize that limitation wise, it was predominantly in Caucasians. And we know that cardiovascular risks are actually different depending on race. And so while this is the first study that gives us some really great large cardiovascular safety data, we really need to further elucidate this in patients who are of different races. Additionally, when you look at the patient population, we're missing the largest risk group, which is those that are acute cardiovascular disease. So they excluded those patients that were immediately post-MI and their cardiovascular risk is higher. So it would be interesting to see what the results would be in that type of patient population following a recent event, and then adding in smoking cessation therapies to see if 
their risk is changed based on that role. So overall, what are the take-home points for this study? So I think it's really important for us to focus in on the major strengths of the study, the fact that we have such a large patient population that's analyzed, and it's analyzed over such a long time period. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't have a lot of data besides this study that shows that. I think it's also the study design gives us this real world, not only are we treating the patients under this controlled study environment, but let's observe them for an additional time period to see what would happen in a more real world setting. I think, you know, in terms of my clinical practice, smoking cessation is one of the things that I do every single day. And this really supports the need to help our patients stop smoking and doesn't decrease the amount of tools that we have to be able to help our patients. These agents can be very effective when used appropriately. And now that I know that there is not an increased cardiovascular risk or neuropsychiatric risk, it makes me feel more comfortable in using these, especially in my patient populations that may have an elevated cardiovascular risk. What remains to be determined is what we do with those that are in a higher acuity of risk. All right. Great summary of the article, Amber. Thank you for giving us this interesting practice changing knowledge. And I hope we can have you on in the future. I have really enjoyed being here and thank you for allowing me to come and talk about things I'm passionate about. All right. So lastly, let's move on to our final segment, the good stuff segment, where we talk about what we're reading about And so recently, I came across an interesting article in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy that talked about managing bleeding risk with SSRIs. And this article talked about how SSRIs can increase bleeding risk, but it also talked about SSRIs in combination with NSAIDs and that this can actually increase bleeding risk up to tenfold, although this risk can be reduced with a proton pump inhibitor, the combination of the two together actually has a number needed to harm of around 82. So I found this to be really interesting and something to think about for our patients that are on anticoagulants. It's fascinating. So you want to know what I'm reading? Well, in all seriousness, I'm actually reading Harry Potter right now. But if we were to talk more about the medical literature, which we all have to love and read, I actually saw this very interesting study recently in the New England Journal of Medicine that was evaluating the use of chronic ICS LABA therapy compared to PRN ICS LABA therapy in patients with mild persistent asthma. And the results were very thought-provoking and interesting. They specifically looked at the drug Symbacort and looking at its effect in controlling this mild persistent asthma. And what they found was that PRN was just as effective as chronic, but then also reduced the patient's exposure to inhaled corticosteroids, which then lowers their risk of other infections or pneumonia. So it'll be interesting to see how this may play a role in the future asthma guidelines, because I know that the United States is currently working on updating our asthma guidelines. Well, that will help me breathe easier tonight. Thank you, Amber. (laughs) All right. Have a good one, everyone. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, 
Director of Quality and Evaluation, Wilson Kwong, and Faculty Mentor and Founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.